open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. Studying the book of Revelation on Sunday morning. <clears throat> While we're finding our way there, just a reminder, Sunday night we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently studying the book of Zechariah. We'll look to study chapters 9, 10, and 11 this evening. So if you want to read ahead this afternoon and think to yourself, what in the world does that mean? And we'll try to figure that out this evening. So 6 o'clock, each of you are invited. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. And John, the, uh, the Apostle John writes, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had an open book in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his, up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. And in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which uh, when he was about to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. And then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And then I took the little book and out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Let's pray together. Father, we pray as a church family this morning, even as we've been praying all week for the city of Uvalde in Texas, and our hearts are broken by the events of this week, hard to get our minds around that kind of evil, but a great evil has visited that city, and the repercussions are impossible to put into words, into families, into brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and grandparents and friends and the whole community just shocked by all of it. And there's only one in all of the universe who is greater than the needs of that city today, one of our cities in the United States, and that's you. And we pray, Lord, that you would be great in bringing your comfort, your perspective, your strength, and your love all mixed together in a great balm, Lord, and pouring it out upon the city as a whole and even more importantly upon each individual in the great, great wound that has been produced in each one of their lives. We commend them to you, Lord, 
so sorry for what they have experienced and ask that you would be everything that they need you to be. And Lord, as we head into this Memorial Day weekend, we stop as a church family and also remember the lives that have been given in order for us to be able to enjoy the blessings that we enjoy in this nation, to enjoy the privileges and to enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy in this country. And Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for each of us here today that this will not be our final thought this weekend in that direction, to think about the price, the ultimate price paid for us to be as free as we are. And I pray too for myself and all of us here today that with the understanding and that once a year to give a consideration to the price that has been paid to also give thought to our own lives for how we are handling these privileges, how responsible we're being with these blessings, Lord, and these freedoms that have been protected and delivered to us. And how we long, Lord, not only to know these freedoms, but to handle them and to live in them in a way that is respectful of the sacrifice. And we pray that you would anoint us and that you would bless us and that you would lead us that we might be able to. We pray that you would open up your word to us, that the sermon this morning and the time in your word would not be about somebody speaking from the front and a lectern in a big room and just something we do. But Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts as we have come to not only worship you and praise you, but to receive from you and hear from you as well. And we pray for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> chapters 10 and 11, at least through verse 14 of chapter 11, constitute the second, what is called a parenthetical uh, passage within the book of Revelation. It is best to understand the book of Revelation as a chronology, uh, a passage of time, a chronology from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19 as the progressive unsealing of the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments unfolding and then those giving way to the bowl uh, judgments. But between the seal and the trumpet judgments, as we saw in chapter 7, and now between uh, the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments, there is this pause, there is this interlude, where, uh, as we talked before, as somebody might write a story, the progression, the storyline is moving very, very quickly. The author feels like I might lose the reader from understanding the backstory a little bit or other elements of the story in order to, to track with me so this revelation can really be the revelation that God wants it to be. And so that's what he does now. He brings to light to us other things that are happening even beyond the, the seal and the trumpet and the bowl uh, judgments. This interlude or parenthetical passage here uh, in, in these two chapters talks about a mighty angel, talks about 
uh, a little book, and then it talks about the two witnesses of the tribulation period in chapter 11. Today we'll limit our, uh, our uh, examination to chapter 10 in the mighty angel and the little book. The mighty angel is described here as he appears on the scene. I don't know about you, but after looking at all those demon things in chapter uh, 9, I'm ready for this. All of these uh, locust-like demons with stingers like uh, scorpions and then four angels that are more horrific than in unleashing a a demonic uh, uh, destruction upon the earth that the world has never known before. And as we went through it last week, I mentioned that I wouldn't want to meet any of uh, those demons in a dark alley uh, at night. And, uh, but then when we come to chapter 10 and we get to see the other side of the angelic realm, uh, the demons are angels that have fallen, followed Satan in his rebellion against God, but there's a group of angels that kept their first estate, the Bible says, and uh, we come to one of those today. And I would very gladly meet any and all of the demons in chapter 9 as long as this guy's with me. So we want to remember both sides of of that supernatural uh, uh, realm. You notice that he came down from heaven in verse 1. Heaven is the customary abode of angels, except when they're dispatched by God to perform His work in in creation. And they are ministering spirits uh, created to do the work and the purposes of the Lord. And now He comes to the earth, and this parenthetical passage making up chapters 9 and 10 now moves from a focus on heaven now to events that are occurring uh, on the earth. Some people identify, <clears throat> excuse me, this angel as Jesus because he's described so majestically, he is really so awesome in, in, in how he is uh, presented here. And even though Jesus is referred to repeatedly in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, he is never referred to as the angel of the Lord um, in the book of, of Revelation. You notice too that this angel touches the earth, one foot upon the sea, one foot upon the land. As best as we can understand the the revelation that's been given to us in terms of what Jesus does during the tribulation period is that that seven-year tribulation period begins with the rapture of the church. When he descends from heaven, there's a shout, we are taken up into heaven, uh, we are taken up into the air to meet with him, taken into heaven. So begins the seven-year tribulation period. And then Jesus brings an end to the seven-year tribulation period at his second coming. He does not come to the earth anywhere during those seven years. He is in in heaven during that time. Additionally, you notice that this angel is described as another angel. And that tells us immediately that that this isn't Jesus because Jesus isn't, excuse me, Jesus isn't another anything. There is Jesus in a category of one. And, uh, and so here, 
uh, as the only begotten Son of the Father. He can't be another anything. The Greek word that is used for another here in the passage is alon, and it means another of the same kind. This angel is an angel of the same kind as the seven angels who uh, unleashed the seven trumpet uh, judgments. And so he's spoken of as another angel in order to differentiate him, uh, him from those seven. He really is quite awesome. We were told that he was clothed uh, with a cloud. Uh, all of us are clothed here today. We're glad for that. But when you went to the closet to pick out what you were going to wear today, um, none of you had a cloud in there uh, as an option for you. So we know we're dealing with something uh, pretty amazing. He had a rainbow upon his head, and so picture a halo, a multicolored halo. His face was like the sun, radiant, just shining like the sun. Again, you have the Apostle John using the word like in order to try and describe what he's seeing. There's nothing in the human language that he can say, this is exactly what I'm seeing. The human language is limited in describing not only heaven, but also in describing angelic beings. It's the best he can do. His feet, this angel's feet were like pillars of fire. Fire is a symbol of purity. It's a symbol of judgment, speaking about the judgment that's going to to uh, follow in the earth in the form of the bold judgments, and that all of that uh, judgment is founded in uh, God's holiness, it's founded in His righteousness. In verse 2, he had a little book in his hand, and the word refers to a small scroll, so not a book the way that we would think of it, a small scroll, and it's called, uh, referred to here as a little book or a little scroll in contrast to the greater scroll that we've already seen in the Revelation, the scroll that was in the hand of God the Father in chapter 5 that Jesus then took out of the hand of God the Father. So to differentiate between uh, the two scrolls. We're told further that He set His right foot on the sea and His left foot on the land. I want to see that. That's, he's gigantic. And, uh, and one of the things about the book of Revelation is maybe there's nothing quite so concentrated in the whole Bible that speaks about the diversity and the awesomeness in, of, of the angelic realm. And this guy's one of my uh, favorites here. And so one foot on the sea, one foot on the land appears to communicate God's dominion over the heaven and the earth, and that He's going to bring uh, the heaven and the earth under His dominion by means of this tribulation period, by means of His judgment, uh, and He has the right to do so as Creator. Because He created the heavens and the earth, He can do to the heavens and the earth, including the earth, whatever He wants. And that's good for us to be reminded of. Uh, we're only renting here. We don't own anything in this world. It all belongs to Him. And uh, no matter how people may like or not like what God does to His creation in order to bring in a new heaven and a new earth, it is His to do uh, with, uh, entirely as He pleases. He cries out then with a loud voice as when a lion roars. So befitting of his size, his voice is like a lion when it roars. You wouldn't want to have him have a little squeaky voice, would you? That'd be kind of weird. And so there's this 
deep majestic kind of uh, voice and probably the voice of a lion in order to uh, awaken the world to the judgment that is is coming and then uh, we're introduced in verse 3 the latter part of it to the seven thunders and so when he cried out with a loud voice as a lion roars uh, we're told in verse 3 it provoked a response and the response was when he cried out seven thunders uttered their voices things get very very interesting and very very mysterious here uh, now as a result the seven voices communicated something intelligible and they communicated it with great power and in, in verse 4, John is about to write it down. He begins to, to write because he had been commanded twice by Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 to write down what he was about to see and what he was about to hear. So obediently now, he begins to uh, uh, do that. But as he's about to write down what they uttered with their voices, he's told not to, but rather to seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. So the identity of the seven thunders and what they communicated remains a complete mystery to us to this day. John is the only mere man who knows what they communicated and knows what they said, and he took that knowledge with him to the grave and then into heaven uh, with him. And I think that this, we learn an important lesson about God from this, and we certainly, it's certainly a lesson that we need to make a foundational in our understanding of God and foundational in our relationship uh, with God. It's fascinating to me that despite having absolutely zero hope of knowing what these seven thunders communicated, there are any number of commentators who then venture in to engage in all kinds of speculation about what it is uh, that the seven thunders uh, uh, uttered. I mean, they just fearlessly rush in, as the old saying goes, where angels fear to tread. And I ask myself, why would, why would a person feel the necessity uh, to do that? And I think one of the reasons is that there's a certain kind of person and there is even a certain kind of Christian who is very uncomfortable with mystery concerning the things of God and even very uncomfortable with mystery in their relationship with God. They want an explanation for everything they want every single loose end that they see in the Scripture to be tied up uh, nice and neat, uh, whether, uh, and not only concerning the Scriptures, but concerning life. And if God won't tie up the loose ends, I'll tie them up for them. We, just, we want everything just neat and ordered and fully uh, explainable. But the problem is, is that any time you have the finite us, in relationship with the infinite God, you are going to have to get used to mystery in that relationship. Because we can only track with Him so far on anything that He would bring up 
or that we could ever bring up uh, to Him. The old saying really is true that a God that's small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship. If I could understand everything about Him, He would be smaller than my mind. If He's smaller than my mind, then He's smaller than me. If He's smaller than me, then why do I want to worship Him? And and yet, despite the illogicalness of of wanting to understand everything about God and to answer every question, tie up every single loose end, we have a tendency uh, to do it. And here we learn that it's important to honor the silences of God, what He doesn't say in His Word, as well as what he does say, because there are reasons for his silences. Not only are there things that we don't uh, need to know about God and his ways presently, there is a whole world of things that we cannot know about God and about his ways. You take any subject in the world that we would want to engage God on, and after we've hit the limit of our capacity to understand, his knowledge goes infinitely beyond that. The illustration of the Bonneville Salt Flats, 30,000 acres in Utah. And you might remember, I don't know what they're doing with it now, but when I was much younger, they would go out there and and they would set land speed records with automobiles. It could hardly be called automobiles. I mean, they were jets with wheels because there was enough room to get all of that propulsion going and get to the high speed, break the record, and then still have time to stop before you hit a mountain. So it's a massive, massive, uh, virtually flat uh, area, perfect for uh, that, that kind of uh, uh, exercise. And so go to the Bonneville Salt Flats and stand there in the summer, the heat rising up off of the flats and, and the, in the surface of it, the distortion that comes uh, with that. And then ha- have somebody take a, a, an eight-foot pole with a very large red flag on the top of it and begin walking away from you off into the distance. That person will reach a point where at one moment in time you see them and the next step they're gone. And that's the vanishing point. That's what the Bible refers to as the vanishing point. And that's how we use the word within the culture. It's a phrase that's used to describe the point at which something disappears or it ceases to exist. And so it, see, it disappears on us and you take a great stake and you drive it into the ground right there and that is your vanishing point where that, the distance that that person has gone. And even though that's your vanishing point, the Bonneville salt flats go on with almost no limitation in terms of of eyesight, way beyond the limitations of eyesight, beyond our vanishing point. And what is true of the human eye is true of the human mind. You take any subject of your choosing, carry it out, your understanding, as far as you can, plant your stake, and then realize that God's understanding of that same thing goes infinitely beyond. Wherever we can take, 
anything that we even remotely understand or understand well. And there's something about what the seventh unders uttered that we either don't need to understand or we are presently incapable of understanding. God never makes a claim to us that the revelation of His Word is exhaustive. What He does claim is that it's satisfactory for life and godliness, and it's satisfactory in thoroughly furnishing us to every good work in this age, as Paul wrote in his letter to Timothy. Now, examples of this kind of thing where we can find ourselves forever trying to uh, uh, solve every mystery of the Christian life. Someone might wonder, how is it that it can be true, as the Bible teaches, that Jesus is fully God and fully man all at the same time? How in the world can that, that be, as the Bible describes Him there? Well, I don't understand it it, it fully. Very much shrouded in mystery. The Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit make no apologies for the fact that, that there's great mystery that's associated with it. Paul wrote again to Timothy, Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. That God was manifested in the flesh, speaking of Jesus, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. But beyond our vanishing point, from the vantage point of God, that truth concerning Jesus is not contradictory at all, but it's absolutely complementary. There's no contradiction in it at all. And so it is with the discussions that people have, Christians have, over God's predestination and man's free moral agency in choosing or rejecting God's offer of salvation. And some people, they cannot accept any kind of mystery in the the Christian life, and so they take this subject too far in one direction or the other, and they end up either denying God's predestination in salvation, or they deny man's freedom to choose, and then the fact that man is then held responsible uh, for uh, that choice. Another great example is in the Old Testament, where God provided Two very different portraits of the Messiah in the Old Testament Scriptures through the prophets. He painted a, a prophetic portrait of the Messiah, one of them as, as being a conquering king, and a second one of him as being a suffering uh, savior. And, and then unwilling, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, unwilling to accept mystery, unwilling to accept that both of them are true, though presently for them it was beyond their understanding. They considered them contradictory, not to be complementary, and they chose then to, to emphasize the conquering king portrait of Messiah and virtually completely neglect the suffering Savior portrait within the, the, the Scriptures. And it would have been better for them to just simply have accepted the mystery of it and, and the truth of it, to, to have accepted both is true 
and then uh, and to acknowledge that it's presently beyond their full uh, understanding and then just have waited for God to reveal how both of these portraits would be fulfilled in Messiah by means of two comings. And, and so that Jesus in His first coming would fulfill the prophetic portrait of the suffering Savior, but it, He would fulfill the conquering King portrait and will in His, his second coming. And the failure of the Jewish religious leaders to accept mystery in their handling of the Scriptures left the nation of Israel almost entirely unprepared for Jesus' first coming. They were entirely equipped for His second coming, but not at all for His first coming. And so we see the trouble that this kind of thing can get us into. And not just theologically, but on a personal level in terms of how God deals within, uh, within our lives. I think about the book of Job. Job went through awful suffering. And for chapters, he's lamenting the suffering that he's in, and he's demanding a, a, an explanation from God for why this is happening in his life. And then he moves from demanding an explanation, he moves into speculation. He starts to fill in the blanks that God isn't filling in for him. And what he does not know, and he would never know, is that there was this great cosmic kind of contest that was centered upon him. Satan had come to God and said, no one will ever follow you for you. They only follow you for the goodies you give them. They only follow you for the blessings. You shut off those blessings and no one will walk with you, and no one will follow you. And Job became the great lesson to the angelic realm, the heavenly realm, the earth realm, through time and eternity, that there are people who will walk with God and follow Him through the deepest troubles and do so for the relationship alone and not for the goodies that come out of, of the relationship and, and the blessings that come out of the relationship uh, so often if they're denied for a season. And at the end of the book of Job, God never explains Himself. Okay, this is what was going on. The devil brought this, and then I said, and no, have you considered my servant Job? And oh, He didn't tell him any of that at all. In the latter chapters of Job, uh, Job is speculating about what he would do if he was God and he can't understand and all these things. And, uh, and I don't pick on him. I mean, I'd, I'd have done a lot worse. And so he, he's, he's trying to figure all this out. And if I could only have God in front of me, I have a question or two for him. And so then he has God as an audience. And God says, before you ask me any questions, I'd like to pose a couple of questions to you. And he posed 70 questions to Job, not one of which Job could answer. It was like a, a qualification to be God test, and he was 0 for 70. Every one of them, God could answer. And God was teaching Job two great truths in the universe. Number one, there is a God, and number two, that you are not uh, Him. 
And what God did with Job was just masterful in dealing with the mystery that we all face in a relationship with God. He didn't explain himself because it wasn't his purpose to do so. But he gave Job a greater revelation of himself so that Job could realize that I can trust this God with what I don't know because of what I do know about him. But here is the confusion, the, 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 the fact that we, we dislike mystery in the Christian life, not just theologically, but, but in our own life. And then he moves from this with the, the seven uh, thunders, and the angel now in verses 5 through 7 uh, takes this oath. He raises his hand up to heaven, the posture, of course, of taking an oath. He swore uh, by God, verse 6, and uh, declaring him to be eternal, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and, and thus free to do again with, uh, with, with it what he, uh, he, he chooses to do. And then Interesting in verses, end of verse 6 and 7, he then swore that there should be delay no longer. A delay in what? A delay in the sounding of the seventh trumpet that would then unleash, it will unleash the seven uh, bowl uh, 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 judgments and, and those seven bowl judgments appear to unfold very, very quickly once uh, those begin to start in order, as, the, as John says here, in order to finish the mystery of God as God had declared to His servants and His prophets. The delay is over, the angel says, in the establishing of the kingdom of God on the earth and all of its righteousness and all of its peace, all of its love, all of its joy, all of its purity, just as God has declared all the way through the Bible through His prophets. Again, you can't improve on Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 to describe where all of this is going the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And there comes a point in time where the delay in the establishment of that kingdom, it ceases. And why has there been the delay? Why the delay even at that point in time as John is writing this? Why the delay to this day? Why does God delay in establishing that kingdom immediately? Is out of His grace. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. It has entirely, as we've seen as we've gone through this book, one chapter after the other, He is giving people in, in the world one opportunity after the other, after the other, after the other, to turn to Him and, and, and turn to Him uh, for salvation. Trying to bring them to repentance. But there comes a point in time, and there will come a point in time in all of this, where there can be no more uh, delay. Where the final complete defeat of evil is going to occur. And, and, and that will be to the rejoicing of the righteous. And it will be to the great surprise of the unrighteous or the ungodly. And God, this delay uh, that uh, out of God's patience 
and his desire for the whole world to be saved is sometimes used against him by the unsaved world. Peter brings it up, the fact that people will scoff at these things that we're looking at here today. Say, all things continue on as they have. God makes these promises, He says these things, but He'll never do them. God steps in here and says, in this this chapter, and the angel declares, oh yes, he, He will do them. And there comes a place where there'll be no more delay, and then it unfolds. The reason there's a delay today is so that more and more people might be saved and come to a faith in Jesus Christ. And that then in verse 7, that all of this would then be uh, finished. The introduction of the kingdom of God and all of the rest of this would be finished. The tense of that phrase would be finished in, in, in the Greek. It emphasizes the certainty of a future event. And, and it speaks of all of this as if it's already occurred. This is as good as done, is what is being uh, declared here. Jesus will take possession of what He purchased by His blood and through His death and burial and resurrection one day, and it will be finished, and the delay will come to an end. And then we're introduced, and our focus is moved into this little book, and verses 8 through 11. There's a voice from heaven, He spoke to John, and He instructed him to go to the mighty angel and take the little book that was in his hand. I don't know if you've seen that uh, um, King Kong. And then some, what is it? I've seen like some commercial on TV or something where, and then the little girl comes and touches his finger or something like that. I don't know what the size-wise is here. But um, John's got to feel pretty comfortable that this is a safe uh, being to approach. And so he does. So he's instructed to go to this angel, take the little book uh, uh, that's in it uh, from him that's in his open hand. And uh, so here, John becomes personally involved. Unusual, he becomes personally involved in the vision God is giving to him. And so the little scroll here, the little book, appears to be a record of the judgment that is going to unfold now uh, in the, these final uh, bold judgments with the sounding of the seventh uh, trumpet. All of it is ultimately going to give way then to Jesus' second coming, the kingdom age, a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and then Jesus dealing ultimately and finally with evil and the devil and the Antichrist and all that followed them, and then everything giving way to a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells, as the Bible uh, tells us. And so John then, he obeyed, he requested the book uh, of the angel, as we're told there in verse 9, and the angel instructed him to eat the book, forewarning him in in eating it, giving him a heads up that it's going to make his stomach bitter, but it'll be sweet in his mouth. Now when you eat something, to eat something is to internalize something. And and so... uh, Five minutes before, there's food on a plate. Uh, Five minutes later, it's inside of us, it's been internalized, and it is now officially a part of us. And so that's the imagery that's being used here. And so in eating the scroll, God's message, God's Word, John is being called to internalize it. It's to become a part of Him. 
And and Ezekiel experienced the same kind of thing related to the Word of God and the and the and the message of judgment that God had given uh, given him in Ezekiel's chapter uh, two and three and and in order that they the those that would speak for God speaking of all of us as Christians that the message needs to be internalized become a part of us so that we can then declare it with the sobriety and with the connection, with the authority uh, that, that it, we're intended to, uh, to do that with. And so he is called to internalize it. And the speaking of, of the Word of God in these terms uh, is uh, where it is feeding the inner man, the spiritual man, it, it fairly fills the Bible. Job wrote in Job chapter uh, 23, verse 12, I have not departed from the commandment of His, that is God's lips. I have treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. King David wrote in Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And again in Psalm 19, verse 9, uh, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Uh, Jeremiah knew something of this famously. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Peter writes of it himself as you go into the New Testament. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Jesus himself spoke in the same imagery in Matthew chapter 4 verse 4 when he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so John takes the scroll just as the angel had declared, as he partook of it, it was sweet in his honey in his mouth, and it became bitter in his stomach. So it had the twofold effect. God's word, he eats it, it has a twofold effect on him. First it was sweet in his mouth, and then it became bitter in his stomach. Now you have some Bible students that look at this and say, well, this is a picture of the... Uh, reaction or the experience of saved people with the Word of God and unsaved people with the Word of God. To Christians, the Word of God is sweet, and to non-Christians, it is bitter. But it, it simply can't uh, be that as, as an interpretation. And the reason it can't is because here, it's only a believer who takes part of the book. Only John takes, uh, partakes uh, of the book. It's intended to describe the twofold effect that the Word of God has on every Christian when we partake of it and when we internalize it. And the Bible is sweetness to us because it reveals God to us as Christians. It reveals His nature, His grace, His love, His wisdom. It reveals His power. 
It reveals His goodness. It reveals to us that every good and acceptable thing that is in the world and blessing comes from Him into our lives. And on and on and on we could talk about the sweetness of the Word of God to a Christian. The reminder that God is going to uh, be victorious in human history and, and win is all sweetness to us. But the same Bible produces a great sobriety and a great awe and a holy fear in us when we read about, as we do in much of the Revelation, of the judgment of the ungodly that will be required to practically redeem this world from the devil and from evil uh, and from wicked men and women. For the, from the wickedness and the sin and the devil, all of the, all of the judgment that is going to be brought uh, to them, and then how all of it is going to be brought to an eternal end. And all of this fallenness is, is brought to its end in order that, to give way to a new heaven and to a new earth. And so we rejoice in it, but the realization for us even as Christians who are saved, of how many people, how many family members, how many friends, how many neighbors, how many co-workers, how many countless multitudes of people will be on the wrong side of God are on the wrong side of God today and will be on the wrong side of God in His judgment. And it hurts us inside to know that. There's no joy in that for us. There's no sweetness in that for us. It hurts our hearts in knowing that this is what will be required. And I think we see something of this very reaction, this twofold reaction of a child of God to the Word of God in the prophet Daniel, as he's given over and over again these prophecies of judgment that must come upon uh, the world in order for God's will to prevail. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 28, after having received one of these uh, revelations from God, he wrote, this is the end of the account. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And then concerning another vision in Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. And then again in Daniel chapter 10, verse 8, Therefore, I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. And then later in that same chapter concerning another vision, uh, he wrote, and he, uh, when he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground, and I became speechless. And suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips, 
and then opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. And it's not unique to Daniel. Habakkuk experienced the same thing. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. As God spoke of the judgment He would bring upon the children of Israel because of their sin, He says, God, I'm not telling you not to do it. I see that you need to do it. He said, revive your work in the midst of years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then later in Habakkuk chapter 3, and when I heard, my body trembled, he said. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones. And I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. And it's not just man. It's God Himself. God the Father. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, Here is the sweet and the bitter, the bitter that even he feels in this judgment. And he said, Ezekiel, God speaking through Ezekiel, wrote, said, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked will turn from his way and live. And he pleads with Israel, turn, turn from your wicked way, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And the bitter and the sweet found in Jesus in his ministry as he makes his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And as he makes that triumphal entry prophesied by the prophet Daniel, there is the laying down of the palm branches before him as he is seated upon a mule and as he's brought in in the singing of the messianic praises from the Old Testament being sung to him by a great multitude. The scene is not all sweetness though because Luke goes on to describe the scene And he declares that as Jesus drew near, he saw the city of Jerusalem and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you especially in your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, enclose you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And the bitter and the sweet, even there in Jesus, His life and in His ministry, And then the angel in chapter 11 declared to John that he must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And I want you to notice that very important word in verse 11. You don't have to circle it, but you should. And that is the word must. John, you've got to do this. I know that some of it is sweet. And I know that some of it is bitter. But you've got to declare the entire message. 
to the entire world. And it's not easy to read and to study and to assimilate and internalize the whole counsel of God into our spirit, into our inner man, and then deliver it to the world uh, around us. And and God lets John know here that I know that to be true. I know how hard it is to do what I've called you to do. He's spoken of it as he spoke through Ezekiel. God feels it himself. And remember that as John, as he's taking down this revelation, he doesn't have, uh, he, he, he hasn't seen the movie before. All of this is unfolding by the moment for him as well. And, and, and all of, of the sweetness, all of the bitterness uh, of it, and, but it's got to be done. And he said, John, you need to do this. Not only the sweet, but the bitter as well. And it isn't easy. And that's why preachers and teachers and pastors stop teaching the whole counsel of God. And Sundays become pep rallies for what would people want to hear. And entire sections of the Word of God are edited out effectively from the Word of God. But it's why Christians, not just leaders, but why Christians will take and cease reading the Word of God or reading the minor prophets or the major prophets in the Old Testament or the book of Revelation or all kinds of sections of the Bible. And they say, I don't want the bitter. I only want the sweet. I only want what encourages me. I only want what will comfort me. And so we buy devotionals, cease reading the Word of God at all in the devotional life, and we buy only devotionals that are pure encouragement, pure comfort, nothing, I don't want anything that exhorts me, nothing that moves me out of my comfort zone, nothing at all that stretches me or forces me to grow into Christ-likeness. And it's a tendency that we all have, because this isn't easy, but it's important that it be declared and important that it be understood, and important that it be done. Because everyone in the world has a right to hear the truth from God, and then to be able to consider that truth, and then to be able to do with it between them and God what they choose to do with it. But our responsibility is to let them know both the bitter and the sweet. And we can only be like Christ as we deliver both the bitter and the sweet because He was faithful to do it in His ministry. I can never become like Christ only on the bitter or only on the sweet. It is doing both, accepting both, allowing both to have their needed impact. The happy ending of the book of Revelation, the passages that we look at, and it breaks our heart. It is the only as we embrace both of those things that they're then allowed to conform us into the image of Christ and to impart God's heart into us. And without which that heart Uh, uh, that He has for righteousness and holiness and a victory in the end and how it breaks His heart to be able to not, in His desire, that none would perish but that all would come to repentance and to taste and experience that as well. We can't be like Him if we don't have both as a part of our lives, a part of our understanding of the world, 
our acceptance of what the Bible says about all of these things, and then a willingness to declare them and to stand upon them and to deliver that truth to others just like somebody did for us. And as a case in point in terms of the bitter and the sweet or the good and bad, a great example of it is if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, there's good news for you and there's bad news for you. And it's only the bad news that allows you to ever appreciate the good news. There's bitter and sweet in it. And the bad news is that you're a sinner. You've been less than perfect all of your life, and your sin has separated you from a relationship with God at the very thing that you've been created for. And without engaging in that relationship, nothing in this world will satisfy, nothing in this world will make sense. My sin has separated me from God. That's why my life is empty. That's why I sense there must be something more to life than I have experienced. Because there is, and it's the most important thing of all. And so there is that bad news of my condition. But then it gets followed by the good news that God so loved you that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, into the world to pay the price for the forgiveness of your sins and in order to make salvation a free gift to be received from Him. And then in receiving that, to experience a spiritual birth in your life, to be born again, a miracle of the Spirit, to now have everlasting life, the hope and the confidence of heaven, the forgiveness of sins, a personal relationship with God. But there's the bad before the good. And if I won't accept the bad news, then I won't see my need for the good news. And so there it is, the offer of God to the whole world. And if you've never ever trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship today so that the good news then comes in to dominate the bad news. And this good news knows how to dominate the bad news and make us into new creations. And so for us this morning, we just want to thank the Lord for mystery in a relationship with Him and that what we do know about Him reassures us that He is fully worthy of being trusted when we don't know exactly some of the things about what He's doing. And then thank the Lord for the whole counsel of God and what both the bitter and the sweet do in conforming us into the image of Christ. And then to thank God for those who preached the gospel to us, who taught the bitter and the sweet to us, so we would see our need as well as God's offer of salvation. And then the reminder that human history is going to come to its conclusion just as God determines that it will. And to thank God for Jesus' sacrifice that puts us on the right side of that happy ending and on the right side of His judgment. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the riches that are found in this chapter. Such riches. How You know us so 
very, very well. Thank you for our Savior this morning. How we want to be like Him in all ways. We don't want to become self-censoring. We don't want to become the determiner of what we will or will not allow ourselves to be exposed to, even by You, and miss out on the fullness of the Christian life and cease to become like He is in this world, which is the greatest privilege of our life. And so continue to brood over this passage, continue to bless it to our hearts, continue to give its full and needed work within our lives. Thank you for it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.